you'll find it helpful to have that passage uh, back open in front of you. Did you know that at the moment, every generation that we have seems to get a, a new name, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? So we have the baby boom generation, so you've got Generation X, Generation Y, uh, and now we've got Millennials as well. Uh, Rhiannon and I uh, realised last week that we're both technically Millennials, uh, but at opposite ends of the age range, which runs from sort of early 80s uh, to late 90s. Uh, but does anyone know the name of the generation that's coming after Millennials that they've started, they've given a name to now? Anyone know? Well, they're calling it the Snowflake generation. So Rhiannon, for example, would be a millennial, but Owen, her younger brother, would technically be a snowflake. The snowflake generation, according to the Collins English Dictionary, are the young adults of the 2010s, viewed as being less resilient and more prone to taking offence than previous generations. The Metro newspaper puts it like this. The suggestion is that, like snowflakes, these people are delicate individuals And a slight increase in temperature will see them melt, often resulting in a high emotional response. I must admit, my favourite part was a little bit later on in the article, where it said that some people of that generation are unhappy uh, with the term snowflake, uh, because it's causing them undue emotional stress. (laughs) Sort of proves the point, doesn't it, really? Um, But this morning, we're looking at a passage that, that speaks about God's discipline. Does God want us to be snowflakes? who fall apart at the slightest touch, who when the heat is on sort of melts into a puddle. And I want to say from right from the beginning, no, God doesn't want us to be snowflakes. He doesn't. But equally, he doesn't want us to be macho, unfeeling machines without any emotion either. What he does want for us is to have the resilience to finish the race, to get to the end. We were seeing last week, weren't we, that the Christian life here in Hebrews 12 is pictured as a race running towards the goal. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Casting off all that hinders. But we said last time that this is a marathon, not a sprint. It's an endurance race of faith. And that idea is continued in verse 4. Do you see it uh, there in verse 4? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet uh, resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The phrase struggle there, it, it gives you that impression of that marathon race, doesn't it? pushing through the pain, struggling on when it's hard, in a way that you just don't experience in a sprint. If you ever run a long-distance run, you'll know at some point it can actually feel like agony to keep running. You hear marathon runners talking about the pain barrier or the wall, don't you? Upping your pain threshold was a phrase that I kept finding this week looking in sort of running magazines. A marathon race is a struggle. It's a struggle to keep going and not turn back. A struggle to make it through to the end. But there's a prominent ultra runner. I couldn't quite work out what an ultra run is. I think it's like a marathon and then some. There's a prominent uh, ultra runner called Sally McRae who says, the pain is not greater than what is at the finish line. Pain is not greater than what is at the finish line. That's what keeps her going through marathons. And the author says to the Hebrews, in your race you have not yet struggled to the point of shedding your blood. The immediate context is Jesus, isn't it, in verse 3, who did struggle to the point of shedding his blood. He's saying, in your race of faith, it hasn't quite got as bad as it could do. It's not quite got as bad as it has been. You may have hit the wall, 
But it's not the end. It's not finished. And even now, you're not being asked to choose between Christ and your own life. You're actually being asked to choose between Christ and freedom. Yeah, maybe. Christ and stuff, yes. But not Christ and your life. They're not yet in the worst case scenario. That sums up quite well where we are in 21st century Britain, doesn't it? There hasn't been a British martyr in some time. It's bad, but it's nowhere near as bad as it could be. And sometimes we need to stop and get some perspective of how privileged we are in the UK. I don't know if you get EM, but there's some brilliant articles always in EM about different people who are struggling around the world. I just took some headlines out of here from just this month's uh, EM. So, uh, for example, we had uh, Pakistan burned for faith. A 25-year-old Christian woman from the Punjab province in Pakistan died of horrific injuries 11 days after being set on fire for refusing to convert to Islam in order to marry a Muslim man. India, uh, a Christian labourer from the district of an area I can't pronounce in Tamil, was attacked on the 19th of April by a a neighbour who accused him of sharing his faith. Kyrgyzstan, a Christian woman who converted from Islam, was held captive in her home and beaten by a Muslim family in late April for refusing to renounce her faith in Christ. Central African Republic, a church minister, at least 15 people, were killed in an attack on a church service and Christian neighbourhood on the 1st of May. I don't like reading those, but they do give you some perspective that, yes, it's hard, but actually our Christian brothers and sisters across the globe, they have it much harder at the moment. We're not yet at the point of shedding our blood like the Hebrews. But with the Hebrews, there's a chilling possibility that they might in the future. There's that scary word, yet. You have not yet shed your blood. This was one of the last of the books of the Bible to be written. By this point, there have been plenty of martyrs, Stephen, James, probably 11 of the 12 disciples, and possibly even Paul. Only Timothy's mentioned right at the end of the letter, seemingly alone in his ministry now. They could be well aware of what would happen to Christians. So what does the author say to them in the face of hard times that they're experiencing, uh, and hard times that are to come? What will stop them from throwing away their faith and turning their back in the race? Well, he tells them three things. The first thing is remember God's word. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the um, exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What it says here is that God's word addresses us as sons. That's because in the New Testament, as being in Christ, God is now our father. That's the close relationship that we now enjoy to him as individuals. Something that they didn't have as clearly in the Old Testament. We are now God's children. And the author tells us that Solomon's words to his son in Proverbs, by virtue of them being scripture, now become God's words to us. God is addressing us as his own children through the words of scripture. Because that's a relationship that we have with him. So what does God tell us as his children? Well, he tells us, don't grow weary as I discipline you. Don't grow weary as I discipline you. You may be growing weary in the race. We saw that last time. But don't throw in the towel because of my discipline. Don't disregard it. But don't, don't let it be a reason for you giving in. What's the reason for that? Well, 
Because my discipline is not a sign of my abandoning you, but of my love for you. The ones I discipline are the ones that I love. But that raises two huge questions for us, doesn't it, really? Is this really saying that God punishes his own people? And doesn't that really sound quite perverse? Well, first of all, we really need to understand what it means by discipline. The word is paideu, or pdu. Um, broadly, it's what you do with a child. It's where we get our words like um, pedagogue and all the sort of words to do with teaching. It's training, educating, and yes, disciplining. It can be done gently. So if you look on the back of your notice sheets, we'll put some verses there. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 24 to 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting, that's the same word, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So whatever it is, it's something that can be done with gentleness. Um, It mainly seems to be connected with learning, though, so Acts 7, 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Same word. Uh, Acts 22, verse 3, where it talks about being educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And it's something that God's grace does to us. So, Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing us salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Same word. So it seems to be to do with education, with training, with learning. But we're not quite out of the woods yet, are we? Because actually there is the words in our passage, reprove and chastise. And actually those words are exactly like they sound. In fact, the word chastise is a word related to whip. It's the word that's used of what happens to Jesus before he's taken to the cross. But the word for discipline there helps us understand the other words, doesn't it? This isn't punishment for doing something wrong. This is training, this is learning. But it's also not a very pleasant experience. It's not very easy. I think also we can take it that the discipline is not simply a telling off for doing something wrong as a Christian either. It's not saying if you mess up in your Christian life, God will get you. That's not what it's saying. God may discipline us because of a particular sin in our lives, but that's not the whole picture here. The whole picture seems to be that when we face hardships, in some ways to train us and help us more generally. It's not God getting even, it's God training us, helping us. For the Hebrews, it's likely that the hard time uh, that they've been having recently, they don't really know why it's happening. They face suffering and persecutions and hardships. But we're not told of any great sin that they've committed. As you go through the letter, there isn't a sort of obvious sin of the Hebrews. So it's not like they've done something wrong and now God is disciplining them. Actually, he's helping them finish the race. Discipline, if you think about it, is the language of training, isn't it, in a race. The the harsh training that your trainer puts you through so that you can finish it. Well, here God is doing the same for the Hebrews. But that brings us to the second question, doesn't it? Doesn't this just sound perverse, though, that God would bring hardships on his own people? Well, the answer is no, and two reasons. One is that God is not causing the suffering. God is not causing the suffering. By that I mean he's not the direct agent or doer of the suffering. God is not the author of evil. What God is doing is permitting suffering, allowing suffering in certain cases. 
That sounds a little bit weird. Think of Job in the Bible. Job suffers. Well, who causes Job's suffering? Well, the devil does, doesn't he? He comes along, he takes away his family, he takes away his home, takes away his health. But the devil has to ask God's permission. And in this case, God grants it within certain boundaries, doesn't he? He says, you can do this, but no further. So could God have stopped Job's suffering? Well, yes, he could. He could have just said no to the devil, couldn't he? And in that sense, it is his decision. But on the other hand, God does not cause Job's suffering. That's the devil who causes Job's suffering. So God is not harming his children, but he is allowing harm to come to them within the boundaries that he sets. It's a bit like parents allowing their kids to play with other children or play in the mud. You know that there's a risk, don't you, that they're going to get germs, that they're going to catch the cold, they're going to catch viruses and things like that. But actually those things make the child stronger in the long run, don't they? They say now, actually, if you keep your kids away from all the mud and sort of mixing, actually you're doing them a real damage in the long run. So it's not cruelty by allowing things that are hard to happen. Now it's slightly different if the, child, the parent is deliberately making their child ill. That would be a bit of an issue, wouldn't it? But just helping them grow, helping them through hard times, allowing them to go through them, actually it's there to help them to get stronger. And the second reason that I don't think this is perverse is that isn't this exactly what we've seen in the heroes of faith in chapter 11? They faced all sorts of trials and hardships, not to destroy their faith, but to strengthen it. So think about Abraham. Abraham was asked to offer Isaac. That sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? Give up your only son. But it wasn't there to undo his faith in God. It was there to strengthen his faith in God. Trials and hardships actually make us grow stronger. They actually make our faith grow. Just like those bugs that make our immune system grow, well, we actually finish up stronger than we were before. And when Jesus talks about hardships, he uses sort of similar language. He uses the language of pruning. So John 15, verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. Now, I've got a couple of cherry trees in my back garden. I'm not very good at looking after them, I must admit. Um, But I imagine for my cherry trees, being pruned is not a very pleasant experience, having bits chopped off you. But the reason that people prune trees is to make them stronger and to make them bear more fruit. So just as the gardener is helping the tree by pruning it, so God is helping us by allowing us to go through these things. But we do end up by thinking, well, does this sound just like God is being mean? It might just sound like God is being really harsh. Well, the second thing that we need to remember is to remember God's care. Have a look at verses 7 to 9. It is the discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So we need to remember God's care. Is God being mean? Well, the answer there is no. God isn't being mean. He's treating us as sons. He's treating us as his own children. 
What decent parent doesn't discipline their child? Now, you might disagree over exactly how to do that, but no one seriously suggests no discipline, not teaching your child right from wrong, not teaching them how to keep themselves safe. Actually, not teaching your children those things, not disciplining them in that way, is technically termed neglect. It's a form of child abuse. When a child is neglected by their parents, it's as though the parents aren't acting as their parents. Now, every so often, there's a trend in parenting, apparently, for something they call permissive parenting. And this is basically parents allowing their kids to do basically whatever they like. And there have been some psychologists who've looked into it and found out, you know, what, what are the sort of effects on the child of this style of parenting? And they found out that they have low achievement in lots of different areas, poor decision-making skills, more aggression, less emotional understanding, and are prone, uh, more prone to delinquency and substance abuse. In the article I was reading on this, it said this, Permissive parents tend to be very loving, yet provide very few guidelines and rules. These parents do not expect mature behaviour from their children, and it often seems like they want to be more of a friend than a parental figure. That sort of sums it up there, doesn't it, really? They want to be their child's friend rather than their parent. The tragic fact, though, is that actually children only really have one set of parents, don't they? And if that parent wants to be their friend, well, they've got other friends, but they've got no parents. So it's not the role of our friends to discipline us, is it? It's the role of our parents. And the author of Hebrews is saying, God is not being mean to you by disciplining you. He's actually treating you as part of the family. He's treating you as a son. Actually, it's if we're not experiencing any discipline that we should be worried. In that case, it would be like we were an illegitimate child, disinherited, unloved. Better to be disciplined than disinherited, he's saying. So the motivation of God is not anger, it's not God's wrath, it's God's love. And the author goes on to say that we actually respect our earthly parents for the discipline that they showed us. Now I know some of us will have experienced bad experiences with parents and unloving discipline. That's not the kind of discipline that he's talking about here. If your father wasn't great, then think of those teachers at school that you respected. Mine was Mrs. Yateman. She was uh, the head of maths, and uh, she was probably known as the strictest teacher in school. She was definitely not one of those cuddly teachers, you know. If you were crying, it's your problem. Uh, you sort of sat in the corner. It's fair to say that she was not liked by the children at the time, but she was respected. I went on to, uh, just thought, I wonder if it's just me. So I went onto a website called ratemyteacher.com. I did check for Richard. I'm afraid you're not on at the moment. Um, but uh, rate my teacher she had several ratings, all five stars out of five stars these were some of the comments the best teacher I ever had glad to see she is still teaching and, well, this was a while ago uh, and hope to see her continue for a long time yet her discipline skills are second to none and teaching style brilliant fantastic teacher, she was very strict but for good reason she made sure that everyone in the class understood everything she was saying even if she had to scream and shout at times that was Mrs. Yeatman. So at the time, people didn't seem to like her. Actually, looking back, she's got five stars out of five stars. Now, the less strict teachers, the ones who wanted to be a friend, you know that kind of teacher? Well, actually, they, a lot of them weren't even on the website. And if they were, they had very low rankings. Actually, you don't respect those kind of teachers often looking back. 
And actually, I found that the teachers that were like that with me, I didn't do as well in their subjects either. Now, they don't have a ratemyparents.com, thankfully. Yes. But if they did... It's coming, no doubt, yeah. But if they did, wouldn't it be the ones who had actually showed loving discipline that would get the good comments? If we respect the fathers of our bodies, if you like, for disciplining us, how much more should we respect the father of our spirits for disciplining us? Our Heavenly Father deserves that respect too. So he's not doing this at random. He's actually doing this for our good. Which brings us to our last point. Remember God's purpose. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It says here that earthly fathers discipline for a little while. That means really while we're children, while we're kids. And they do it as it seems best to them. That can be sometimes right and sometimes wrong. Because sometimes earthly fathers have mixed motives, don't they? I'm an earthly father. Uh, Here are some of the reasons that I sometimes discipline my child. I imagine some of us will be the same. I discipline my child for peace and quiet at points. I discipline my child to save face in front of other parents when they're messing up and I don't want to be embarrassed. I discipline them when I'm grumpy. I discipline them because I have a short temper. I discipline them for my own pride. But earthly fathers do what seems best to them. But that's not necessarily always the best thing, is it? We're a big mixed bag. But not with God. God disciplines us for our good. What is our good, our ultimate good? An easy life? A pain-free existence? No, our ultimate good, the passage tells us, is God working towards our holiness. What does God think is best for us as his children? That we might be holy. More than that, that we might share in his holiness. Do you see that as your greatest good in life? Holiness? Surely, normally, it would be happiness. And I want to say those two are not independent of each other. But what really matters to God is that we are holy. So much so that actually we'll go through suffering to get there. That's what verse 11 is about. See that um, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline, in whatever form, is not pleasant in the short term. But in the long term, it reaps a harvest of righteousness, of holiness. The word trains there at the end of uh, verse 11, to those who have been trained by it. It's where we get our word gymnasium from. It's like training in the gym. Those who have trained in the gym of God's discipline yield the fruit of righteousness in their lives. Now, it's not saying that suffering saves you. It's saying that suffering helps sanctify you, makes you holy. Suffering leads to sanctification. Hardships lead to holiness. They help us in the race rather than hinder us. But how? Sounds a little bit counter to logic, doesn't it? you think that those things would stop us. How does suffering lead to holiness? 
Well, suffering often takes away the objects, uh, sorry, the obstacles in our race. Suffering takes away the obstacles in our race. Remember last week we were told to cast off all that hinders us, every weight that weighs us down. Well, sometimes when we will not cast off what weighs us down in the race, God takes it away from us. That experience is not a very nice one, especially because those things often are particularly dear to us. Jobs, houses, people even. But God is doing it for our good, helping us to run the race. Casting them off. That word in verse 11, like I say, comes from gymnasium. Gymnasium, again, the word carries the idea of nakedness that we talked about last week. Gym means naked in Greek. So I wonder whether almost the idea of training there is is part of the idea of stripping off again. Getting rid of those weights. Throwing off those things that entangle us. And remembering that part of the idea of discipline is reproof. Actually, sometimes when we won't take those things away, God sets us straight. So sometimes when we face hardship, that might be what God is doing. Stripping away from us all that we would not strip away from ourselves so that we can finish the race. But we also see in scripture that suffering builds our faith and character. The idea is found all over the New Testament. So James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Or Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Suffering and hardship grow us more personally than comfort and ease ever could. Times of hardship are hard, though, aren't they? That's why they're called hardship. But it's often where we grow most in our Christian lives, isn't it? G.K. Chesterton wrote, We see great things from the valley looking up, but only small things from the peak. I think that's true. Or Billy Graham said, Mountaintops offer views and inspirations, but fruit is grown in the valleys. We know this, don't we? We know this from experience that often when we look back at times that have been hard, we can see great growth, but it's hard at the time. Well, the author is reminding us and reminding them that it's worth it. Something greater lies ahead, a strength that will keep us to the end, a resilience that will help us run whatever the season of our life. Do you remember we said at the beginning, the pain is not greater than what is at the finish line. But to do this, We must see these things with the eyes of faith that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Suffering and hardship does not make us holy in itself. Actually, as we go through these things, we must see them in the light of God's promises to us. We must see them in the light of the unseen reality behind our world. Otherwise, suffering might cause us to stumble, might cause us to turn back. If we don't understand what God is doing behind the scenes, then we might be tempted to think that God is being mean, or that God's just not in control. But we can see in our passage, can't we, as God speaks to us as sons, that God is being kind to us, and he's never out of control. He even uses our suffering to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. So when things are hard, 
Remember God's word that addresses us as sons. Remember God's care, care of a father for a child. And remember God's purpose, not for our harm, but for our good. So that we won't be snowflakes, but we'll be sharers in his holiness, fruit bearers that make it to the end. Well, let's pray that God would take our hardships and use them for our holiness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have adopted us. Father, we thank you that we are part of your family. And Father, thank you that you're not just trying to be our friend, uh, though you are our friend. Father, thank you that you are our father and that you desire for us to be like your son. So Father, we pray as all of us face problems and difficulties and hardships, um, some especially so at this time. Father, help us to remember uh, these things that we've seen this morning. Father, that you are not angry with us, but you love us. And Father, are working for our good. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.